Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. It's good to see all our young folks sticking in today. I will try to, to not be too terribly boring, okay? I loaded up tons of pictures, and I'm telling tons of stories. Um, and as you know, this coming Tuesday, November 1st, is a big Christian feast day called All Saints Day. How many of you knew this? Nobody. Oh, some people did. Hey, that's amazing. All Saints Day. Or in the Old English, it was called All Hallows Day. And the night before All Hallows Day is All Hallows Eve, or more commonly known as Halloween, Halloween, right? This is why it always cracks me up when the Christian fundamentalists freak out about Halloween. Like, it comes from the church calendar, man. Like, that's where that came from. Um, Because it's part of our tradition to um, look to the saints who have gone before us. And to learn about their lives, to tell their stories, and, and those, especially stories of their faithfulness and how they followed after God, both their successes and their failures, their struggles. And this practice has been important to the church for more than 2,000 years. Most of the oldest traditions, the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, um, Anglican, uh, Episcopal churches, they've always celebrated the lives of the saints. Protestants, not so much. Most of the time, evangelicals, hardly at all, because we're like so, we have this aversion to anything that might be a little bit Catholic, you know? Anybody grew up with that? Um, But as a church, we are trying to sort of jettison that aversion. And so each year at Redemption Church, we take the four Sundays leading up to the season of Advent to study the lives of a few of the great saints of the Christian tradition. And we do this just as our way of kind of confessing that we're not the first people to try and follow Jesus. That we stand on the soldiers of, or shoulders of um, giants, you know? People of great faith. And we're fortunate to have this ancient faith and this long tradition and this kind of rich tapestry of faithful saints down through the ages that we can, we can draw upon. And their lives we hope during these weeks will speak to us once again as exemplars of what it means to be faithful. And we try to learn how they were faithful in their time, hoping that as we do, it will um, teach us how to be faithful in our time. Today, we don't have just one official saint, although we'll be talking about some saints, but this is more, I mean, a lot of folks are new to redemption, and so I kind of wanted to do more of an introductory um, talk to the saints that, t- that explains why we embrace this tradition more than a dozen years ago and hold to it each year. Um, one of my favorite saints, a guy named Frederick Beekner, who we're, we're going to talk about next week, he said it this way one time. He said, in his holy flirtation with the world, God occasionally drops a pocket handkerchief. These handkerchiefs are called saints. It's funny to me. I I like this picture of God flirting with humanity and he just kind of drops a little handkerchief, these lives that kind of get our attention. And and God's trying to keep us interested. Drops a little, you know, handkerchief for us. So we'll we'll maybe pick it up and have a conversation and spend a little time with God. And um, Bigner says, this is what the saints are like. They get us interested again. It's how God flirts with us and reminds us why we fell in love with God in the first place. The Catholic Church has their own formal process for how they choose a saint. It's called canonization. And um, this word canon is actually kind of an important Christian theological word. Canon just literally just means measuring rod or rule. Um, The canon is what 
in English, we call kind of the standard for things like weights and measures and how the canon has, is how you, you calibrate other forms of measurement. So in, in, for instance, in London, if you get, visit London, you can still be, see these plaques all around the city for public um, standards of lengths. So if you want to make a yardstick, or more likely if you think some guy's cheating you a little bit, a vendor, you would walk down to the corner and lay the yardstick on these little pegs. And it, it had to be flush with the guide on either end. This, this was their cannon for measurements. And there were cannons of weight to, to for the verify the British pounds. So you could go to the office and they would put them on the scales. They had these standards there. And the, the cannon for the measurement of time, of course, was Big Ben, still is. Um, it would ring every 15 minutes in the city center. People could calibrate their, their clocks to their watches to the city standard. So this is what a canon is. A canon is something against which you can measure and check authenticity. And, and as Christians, we have a canon of scripture to which we compare, you know, the stories that we tell. And we have a canon of saints to which we can compare our lives. So, so the canonization for the saints is the church's way of saying these lives are the standard for some aspect of Christian life, right? You can measure your own life against their lives, and this will help you sort of gauge where you are. And the requirements are tough for canonization. Um, I mean, before, you, before you're even considered, you have to be dead for five years, which counts most of us out. And they do this so they will wait. They can make sure it's not like an emotional decision. Then the first step to canonization is called nihil obstat, um, which um, in Latin means nothing hinders. They assign a bishop to examine this person's life, and they just investigate everything they ever did. Um, they make sure there are no skeletons in their closet, and they're serious about it. They exhume the body and check it over and make sure there were no like secret tattoos or like you know, evil marks, you know, on their skin somewhere that they got away with. Um, and then the bishop sends this official petition to the Vatican. They open a tribunal. And if it's, if, if that petition is approved, they issue this piece of paper, a writ called a nihil obstat. It says nothing hinders. There are no obstacles. This person can move forward. And th at this point, they receive, after this first step, the official title of servant of God which is usually where it stops. It, it, it'll try to go further, but this, that's usually all the further it goes. The second step is called veneration. And here they assign like a, a postulator who's sort of an advocate for sainthood. And they compile everything they ever wrote, everything they ever did. They catalog all of the stories, their virtues. They interview everybody they can about this. And they just compile all this stuff. And then a tribunal of nine theologians is put together. And they read and study everything. And um, at this point, I always think this is funny, there's a person assigned to argue against this team who is called the devil's advocate, which is where that phrase comes from, to make sure, their job is to make sure this is unbiased. And anybody who passes through this step where they're like, yep, everything they did and wrote and said is, is legit, they are given the title, The Venerable. I have repeatedly asked my, my family to call me The Venerable Tim Subtle, but they just don't do it. And I don't know why. Um, the third step is called beautification. And there are two ways to go through this step. One is, if you died a martyr, this is considered miraculous. And, and so you pass um, just for that heroic act. 
The other way is to have performed a legit miracle in your life, and they investigate it thoroughly and try to, to debunk it, right? But if the person was a martyr or if they can substantiate the miracle, they are given the title, the blessed. And this is their beautification. And then the final step is called canonization. And this is where they become an official um, saint. This step, it's interesting, requires a second miracle. Only this one has to occur after their death, which is wild. Somebody has to, they they have to have reached beyond the grave. um, Some kind of intercession for the would-be saint has to have healed somebody or or performed some miracle. Although the Pope can... um, waive this requirement. The Pope can do almost anything the Pope wants to do, actually. Um, In fact, all of the final decisions on sainthood are up to the Pope, and only a sitting Pope can canonize a person's life, and if they do, that person is given the title of saint from that point on, and their life becomes an official measure of what it means to be a Christian, a life against which all other lives can be compared and considered. So, anybody like feeling like you might be in the running for this? <laughs> right? Me neither. And the process is kind of weird. It's sort of archaic. I mean, they, they invented this process in the in medieval era of the church. But it shows how they tried to be really careful with the lives that they held up as canon, as part of the canon of saints. Because once they're canonized, The church puts them on display and says, this is a good standard for some aspect of of Christian life. You can measure your life against their lives and help you gauge how how you're doing. Um, And I've come to believe that the more we know about the lives of the saints, the, I don't know if easier, but the more fruitful it becomes for us to then discern what faithfulness looks like in, in our own time, in our own lives. We'll get better at, at spotting the saints in our own life and those around us who are worth imitating. And, and so that's why we started looking at a few saints every single year, just taking these four weeks to study them. And um, we're looking at them not just as spiritual giants. All of them have some kind of Achilles heel, some kind of like something where you're like, wow, that is way off. Often it's just because of the time in which they lived at the place. But... It also makes it easier to look at everyday saints, you know, just folks from our communities and neighborhoods and families and workplace, because these saints are everywhere if we have eyes to see them. For instance, in the 1940s in the U.S., um, there, there were some advancements made. It stemmed in part from the fact that there was a massive famine going on in the country of India, during which over two million people died of starvation just in, in that decade. It's a long-standing problem, of course, anyway. It's estimated during the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, over 60 million people died of starvation in India due to the famines they had. But in the 40s, there was this young um, Iowa farm boy who had just finished his PhD at Minnesota and started doing research. His name was Norman Borlaug. And in 1944, he moved to Mexico to live and work on a research farm, and he was looking for ways to produce a higher yield from a wheat crop. And Borlaug had spent uh, a lot of his life in some of the poorest countries in the world and had just become haunted by the starvation and famine that he saw there. 
and decided to try to do something about it. So over the next 16 years, he worked there in Mexico on a new kind of wheat that was high yielding. It was kind of drought and disease resistant and had this really short but thick, strong stock. And um, they named this dwarf wheat. And it had these huge heads full of, of grain, but the stock was really strong, and so it wouldn't, wouldn't fall over. And in the 1960s, Norman Borlaug took dwarf wheat to India, um, which had the you know, highest food insecurity in the world. And it, I mean, literally, at the time, it was so bad, people were predicting nobody, India will never be able to feed itself. But using Borlaug's methods, they doubled their output in less than 10 years, and um, India became food sufficient. And people literally just stopped dying of hunger. 10 years later, 1970, Norman Borlaug was awarded the Nobel Prize. What most people never knew about him, because he didn't talk about it a lot, was that Borlaug was a devout Christian. He was a, a Lutheran. And he considered his research to be his way of serving God. It was not um, religious per se, but to him, it was sacred. It was his calling that he was working at. In fact, his life was actually not unlike the life of a missionary. He spent more than 50 years of his life living overseas among the poorest people in the world, hungriest people in the world. And he was like a longtime board member of Food for the Hungry. Um, he was a very faithful man. At the time of his death in 2009, Norman Borlaug was credited with saving over a billion lives. Can you imagine? Dr. Borlaug was celebrated for his work. He's one of the only six Americans who received the Nobel Peace Prize, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the Congressional Gold Medal, all three. It's like the triple crown of being a saint. And was died, he lived to like the age of 95, was still getting awards when he, when he died. Just this um, Iowa farm boy who considered his work to be sacred, a sacred calling. There's more to the story, though. And I think the rest of it can teach us a little bit about um, why we study the lives of the saints. In the 1850s, so almost a century earlier, there was a man named Moses Carver who had a farm down by Diamond, Missouri. It's close to Joplin, where he and his wife Susan lived and worked. And by all accounts, they were hardworking, decent people. But Missouri was a slave state back then. And Moses and Susan owned several slaves um, who worked their farm. And one of those slaves was named Mary. And Mary apparently was a pretty compelling figure because she, she lived with them and began to kind of mess with their thoughts about slavery because of the way she lived their lives. She became like family to them. Her husband worked on a nearby farm. Her children and Mary lived with Moses and Susan. And when Kansas entered the Union as a free state in 1861, remember Quantrill's Raiders, the, guy who burnt, the guys who burned Lawrence? They started just re wreaking havoc up and down the border of Kansas and Missouri. And in January of 1864, Mary had just had this a little baby. They named him George. And when the baby was one week old, Quantrill's Raiders showed up at the Carver's farm and kidnapped Mary and the baby and one of his sisters and took them off to Kentucky to sell them into slavery and then to use that money to finance their, their operation. So Moses, um, this farmer, hired like a vigilante guy to go try to find him and bring him back. And all he could find was the baby, George. And um, they found out later the mother and the daughter had been killed. 
And so Moses Carver, I mean a poor dirt farmer, traded two expensive horses for the baby, took him home, and he and Susan adopted little George and his brother James. Now this was a scandalous thing to do at the time. Like white folk didn't adopt little people of color, right? But um, Moses and Susan Carver did just that. Um, some of the neighbors would only call the boy um, Mr. Carver's George, because that's how you address slaves. But by adopting him, they gave him his last name, and he became known as George Washington Carver. And Susan, the mom, taught him to, to read and write, saw that he was kept out of the fields, and um, taught him that though he was born a slave, he was free. Even before the Emancipation Proclamation, they were, they were teaching this. And while helping Susan at home, Georgia, um, George became quite the little gardener with her. He learned to use plants from, um, from the garden to cook, from the forest to cook, um, wild plants even to do like medicine kind of stuff. And she quickly figured out he was too smart. He needed to go to school. She could not help him anymore. Um, the problem is all the nearby schools were for whites only. And so at the age of 11, George started walking 11 miles to school over across the border into Kansas and, um, and then back. And then soon he found somebody to board with so he wouldn't have to, to walk every day and a different family to stay with. Then he had to move to a different school. He bounced around some working and staying places, finally ended up graduating from Minneapolis High School right by Salina where, where I grew up. And... Um, Moved out to Nest City, if anybody knows that part of the state, um, tried to be a homesteader, but he wanted to go to college. And he got into one college, showed up, and they're like, no, no black people allowed in this college. He left defeated. Finally got into Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa. They were abolitionists. They let him in. And he was an art major. George Washington Carver started off as an art major. Isn't that funny? He's like a, a painter and a piano player. And while he was in school, he made friends with a teacher named Etta Mae Budd. And she admired his work, and they became friends. And Etta Mae Budd convinced Carver that he could never support a family as an artist. Like, how many, pe- <laughs> how many times have you heard that if you're an artist? <laughs> and she told him, you need to get a science degree. And she said, my father is a professor over at Iowa State University. I can help you get in. And so in 1891, George Washington Carver was the first black student ever to be admitted to Iowa State University, where he studied horticulture. And it was a struggle for him in the beginning. He was not accepted by the other students. They were cruel and often violent toward him. And he was thinking about quitting. And Adam A. Budd learned about this. And um, so she started, they learned that he had to eat with the help in the kitchen. So she started going in there and and eating every dinner with him in there and kept kind of just bothering everybody until they began to recognize his genius and, and began to accept him, which didn't take long. And they soon put him in charge of the whole department's greenhouse system. And when he graduated, they immediately offered him a teaching post. He was the first black student and first black faculty member at the University of Iowa State, one of the top ag schools in the country. And so he started teaching there, and before long, he caught the attention of a man named Booker T. Washington, who was the president of the Tuskegee Institute at the time. And he came to Carver with this vision 
to teach the next uh, a, a generation of ex-slaves how to farm. And he, he wrote him this famous letter in which he said, I cannot offer you money, position, or fame. The first two you have, the last um, from the position you now occupy, you will no doubt achieve. These things I now ask you to give up. I offer you in their place work, hard work, the task of bringing people from degradation, poverty, and waste to full manhood. Your department exists only on paper, and your laboratory will have to be in your head. And apparently, this recruiting job worked because he quit his job (laughs) and went to Tuskegee and taught and did a massive amount of research, inventing hundreds of things that we still use today, but none more popular than peanut butter. If you like peanut butter, thank George Washington Carver. He's the one who invented it. And he was seen as a great innovator. His friends with Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and FDR. But um, what people don't really know about him is that George Washington Carver was a devout Christian. And he often spoke about how he felt like his research was a calling. His work was a ministry. It was a kind of worship. And he also said that he knew it would have never been possible without faith and without um, this kind woman, Etta Mae Budd, also a Christian, who leveraged her life for his life. Now, stay with me, because here's here's where we're going to move one step away, and it's going to get even more interesting, hopefully. So while George Washington Carver was studying and teaching at Iowa State, he had this professor named Henry Wallace, or Harry Wallace. Harry Wallace was his his PhD advisor, um, and Harry Wallace and his wife discovered that nobody was renting to George. He couldn't stay in the dorms because he was black. And so they just invited him to live with him. He rented a room from them. They're a very influential family in town. They own one of the big ag newspapers. They also had this little boy named Henry Wallace. And anytime uh, George took his students into the field to do research or on like field expeditions or nature walks, he would take this little boy, Henry Wallace, with him. And Carver became a kind of mentor to this kid, instilling in him a love for plants and farming and agriculture. And um, he taught him how to name all the trees and flowers and prairie grasses. And by the time this kid was like 10 years old, um, Carver had him run in a little test plot garden out by their house. And by the age of 15, Henry had proved that the way corn strains were graded by scientists at the time was fundamentally flawed. And Carver helped this 15-year-old write it up. He actually, like, had it it, it published. This kid, 15 years old, advanced crop science, just as a, like, a high school kid. And Henry Wallace was also a devout Christian who came to faith through the influence of George Washington Carver. And as an adult, then, Henry Wallace became a newspaper editor, a pioneer in, like, hybrid corn and ag science. And while lobbying the government on behalf of agriculture, he happened upon and became friends with Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And in 1933, Roosevelt appointed him Secretary of Agriculture. He served there till 1940 when FDR needed a running mate when he was running for re-election. So he tapped um, Henry Wallace and uh, he, became his, he became Vice President of the United States. And served as one term. Then they had to, they had, for political reasons, had to jettison him for a guy you guys know, 
Harry Truman. So he got kicked off the ticket and Truman got brought on. But not before he was able to convince FDR to let him set up a bunch of food research facilities all around the world to fight global hunger. And so Wallace, like a good student of his mentor, George Washington Carver, set up all these research stations all over the world. And one of those research stations was in Mexico. And one of Wallace's final acts as vice president was to hire this young doctoral student named Norman Borlaug to run the facility in Mexico. And then to make sure he had everything he needed, the, the lab was well-funded and he could do his research. Ten years later at that lab in Mexico, Norman Borlaug developed dwarf wheat and saved a billion lives. Right? So here's my question. Who's the saint? Who's the real saint of this story of how a billion lives were saved? Is it Norman Borlaug, who got all the awards, right, for inventing dwarf wheat, won the Nobel Prize? Or was it Henry Wallace, who gave him the lab and, and financed his research and, and had a good teacher? Or was it his teacher, George Washington Carver, who mentored Henry Wallace or taught him agriculture, of course, crop science and all of that stuff? Or was it Etta Mae Budd? who convinced George Washington Carver to stay with it, you can do it, and who looked out for him, stood up for him? Or was it um, Moses and Susan Carver who adopted George as a baby during the Civil War, who welcomed emancipation and gave him an education, gave him, gave him their last name? Who, who's the saint? Of course, the answer, is, the answer is all of them. And all throughout history, it, it has been this way. There's people that history celebrates, Norman Borlaug, George Washington Carver, and Henry Wallace. But there's always an Etta Mae Bud, you know, somewhere behind them. There's always a Moses and Susan Carver who may not be celebrated, but their, their lives matter. You know, their contributions matter. Their small acts of faithfulness change the world. The book of Hebrews that we read earlier was written in the last half of the first century. So this is maybe, you know, 80, 90 AD. Christ has been dead for several decades. And it was a time of great upheaval for the early church. Christians back then were still considered um, part of the Jewish people. They were just a sect of Judaism. And both Christians and Jews were persecuted by Rome. And you know, when Rome persecutes you, you know Rome is, is persecuting you. Their lives were rough. They were blamed for every misfortune, every catastrophe. Earthquakes, pandemics, storms, they blame the Christians and round them up and, and go to town on them. And understandably, the response to this sometimes was that people began to back away from their faith. They'd stop showing up, stop participating in worship. And somebody thought this was a big enough problem that they took the time to write down the book of Hebrews to address what, what was happening and try to sustain this community through what was an extremely difficult time. I mean, Christians were routinely rounded up and killed by the hundreds and thousands, sent to the arena, ripped apart by animals, tortured, crucified. And what the writer of Hebrews focused on to try to hold them together was the lives of the saints. 
We read it earlier, listing all the names of the saints who have gone before them and their great acts of faith. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, even people like Pharaoh's daughter or Rahab, the prostitute who protected the spies who went to scout the land. They were all just a bunch of ordinary people. They certainly had no idea we'd still be talking about them 2,000 years later. They were not worried about how their lives would look on paper. Um, it's actually, I think, one of the requirements for sainthood that you can't know that you're going to be a saint. You can't know ahead of time you'll be held up as an example. Nothing they did seemed that heroic at the time. In fact, they were, they were never venerated, at least not in Hebrews, for their heroics. They're celebrated over and over for their faithfulness. talks about their faith. And so this is the lesson that the Hebrews makes of all those saints' lives. It's a famous verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews was saying, you know, we're still surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. There's some way that they're still here. They've, they've gone before, but their lives still speak. Their lives surround us anytime we tell and retell their stories. And their lives teach us about what it means to be faithful, how to fix our eyes on Jesus, and run our race. Just keep faithing it. And the writer of Hebrews asks us to let this great cloud of witnesses inspire us to be faithful in our current study, to be faithful in our current, you know, whatever the struggles and pursuits are. So when times get tough in our own lives and we're tempted to maybe distance ourselves from God or each other or the church, we can remember this great cloud of witnesses and then maybe throw off some of the stuff that hinders and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So when things get tough and we're tempted to fall away or we just, you know, need a little inspiration, the writer of Hebrews says, turn your eyes to the canon of saints. A person who has endured their own struggle to be faithful and be encouraged by their lives. And even maybe begin to see our own lives as an extension of their lives. Um, after I learned a little bit more, I'm mean, a Southern Baptist kid, so saints were anathema. But after I kind of learned this, this move from the writer of Hebrews, I started to lean into it and collect saints. In fact, on, on my office wall right now is what I call my wall of fame. If you go to the next slide, I think, yeah, that's up there. That's my wall of fame. These are all my people that I look to. I don't know if you know all of them. Rich Mullins is down there. Walter Brueggemann, Eugene Peterson, Annie Dillard, Barbara Brown Taylor, obviously, because I quote her like every other sermon. Bonhoeffer's there. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Lincoln, Merton, Brandon Manning. These, these are my guys. I look, they're, they're, um, if you're in my office, nobody really can see it. It's in a crook where only I can see it. And I look at them all the time, and I'm like, you got to help me. 
like, what have I done? I need some wisdom. I call Eugene Peterson coach because he was a passer. I'm like, coach, you got to tell me what to do, man. Um, I talk to them. I do. And I let their lives shape my life and my understanding. And I try to pattern my life. I try to measure my life against their life as I'm proceeding. And I think this is a good thing to do with our, with our lives. And so um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everyone a homework assignment. Like you guys thought you were just going to show up in a sermon today. You have to be, you're going to go home with homework. Sorry. Um, and the homework is this. I want you to pick a saint just one of your own, whose life um, you either already do or whose life you would like to measure your own life against. And you can do it as a person. You could do it as a whole family if you want to. Um, but just pick out a saint whose life sort of speaks to you and just read up on them a little bit. I don't, don't like write a big report, but I'm talking Wikipedia like research. Just go read a couple paragraphs and then tell us their story. And here's what I want, want us to do, tell their story. Just grab a picture off the internet, like blatantly steal, copyrights be damned, right? Just get a picture, fly it into a piece of paper, and then put a couple paragraphs about their life in there, a few sentences, and why it matters to you, and then bring it back next week. And we're going to put them all on the atrium wall out there, and we're just going to kind of make our own communion of the saints for a redemption church. So um, this week... Talk about it with your family. If you want to do it yourself, just find a saint. Research him just a little bit, as much as you want. Something maybe that'll fit on eight and a half by 11 paper. And bring it back. We'll put it on the wall. And we'll kind of learn about each other's saints. Don't forget to put your name on it so we can see who, who your saint is. Are you game? You want to do this? Okay. All right, let's pray. Oh, God, we do thank you for um, the great cloud of witnesses that um, can help us measure our own lives. And pray as we go on these um, next four weeks heading into Advent and start to talk about these lives that it'll spark our imagination, use them to teach us, use them to encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand, please. And we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion at Redemption is we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or say, I will remember. And the reason we do this is on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it passed it out to his guys, and they all shared in the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. They shared this common cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said, anytime you get together, eat this bread together, drink this cup. In a sense, take my life into your life. Um, Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then be sent out into the world to be salt and light and bear witness to this story. And so that's why we do this every week. And we just share this common meal together. 
and symbolically receiving Christ once again to come and live inside us. Um, so anybody who calls on the name of Christ is welcome at the table. If you would pray with me and let's pray a blessing. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?